Let us be done with fault-finding and leave off self-seeking. May we put away all pretense and meet each other face to face without self-pity and without prejudice. May we never be hasty in judgment and always generous. Let us take time for all things. Make us grow calm, serene, gentle. Teach us to put into action our better impulses, straightforward and unafraid. Grant that we may realize it is the little things that create differences, that in the big things of life we are as one. Welcome to Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson. This is a show for the curious and the concerned, folks who like to ponder big questions and aren't afraid to face big problems. Wes Jackson co-founded the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, an internationally renowned research and education center. He won a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and the Right Livelihood Award, often referred to as the Alternative Nobel Prize. He's a geneticist working to change not only the way we farm and feed ourselves, but also the way we think about how the world around us really works and where we fit in it. Retired professor Robert Jensen talks with Wes about his creaturely worldview and how to understand the past while imagining the future. Robert always prompts Wes to do what he does best, share distinctive and engaging stories about everything from his childhood to his quest to revolutionize agriculture. This is episode number six, Hogs Are Up. Stories of the Land with Digressions. Here's Robert Jensen. I'm Robert Jensen, your guide into the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson. I first bumped into Wes's work more than three decades ago, and his ideas have had a profound influence on my thinking about society and ecology. My conversations with Wes in this podcast will explain why and give you a chance to see how that mind works, how Wes has cultivated the art of seeing small and thinking big. These will be conversations about big ideas that come from Wes's deep roots in the prairie, where he spent most of his life. So, greetings, Wes. Greetings, Robert. Today, we're going to talk about your latest book, which is titled Hogs Are Up, Stories of the Land with Digressions. Let's start with the obvious. Hogs are up. What does that mean? Can you tell us where that phrase comes from? Well, it comes right out of my family. I know that every family has words and phrases that become a kind of a shorthand uh, for a longer thought. And that was the case with Hogs Are Up. Uh, there was a conversation going on with family members, and my mother just abruptly inserted, Hogs Are Up. And of course, everybody looked around, what's this all about? Well, she had probably heard the market report, and it came to her. And so after that, uh, from time to time, if somebody interrupted or wanted to interrupt, they'd say, hogs are up. And that was a signal for some kind of a digression. <laughs> and uh, then we'd go back to whatever the topic was that needed finished. Uh, well, I like that. I might nominate that as the best book title in history. So No question about it. <laughs> Let's stay with the title for a second to explain this book. 
stories of the land. Now, people who are familiar with the Land Institute know that it's often shorthand. People will refer to the Land Institute simply as the land. That also could mean, of course, land, the prairie more generally. So which is it? Well, it's both, actually. But uh, I'm the most fond of it being the broader sense of the land. Uh, we're in mid-continent here. We're in what people call flyover country here. We are um, a state without many people, a little less than three million, I think. So the land is, is, is obvious to us. It's all around. It's the, it's the dominant reality of the whole state. And, of course, we have our Topekas and Kansas City and Wichita and Lawrence. I mean, we have, we have people in town. But we're looking at the crops, the livestock, the various stories about the history of this place, the Dust Bowl years, the Great Depression, the people that um, were getting by just thinking about being sufficient, uh, doing good enough to keep going. So there's, there's a lot of what you might call of a cultural handing down from this, uh, this landscape. Uh, you mentioned there's only 3 million people in Kansas. I just want to point out I'm from North Dakota, and the population of North Dakota is well under a million. It's about 750,000 or so. So you're cosmopolitan by my standards, yeah. Wes. Yeah. I just want you to know that. Now, that was a bit of a digression, which leads, of course, to the last part of the title, mm -hmm. uh, Stories of the Land with Digressions. So uh, uh, you, you like digressions. Why is that? Well, I mean, if you have something that uh, is interesting or funny, why wait? There's something charming about uh, being uh, spontaneous. And uh, mm -hmm. often that invites a more elaboration. I suppose it's the Enlightenment that tried to teach us to stick to the subject and... Uh, <laughs> You know, that's for people that want to be rigorous, I guess. Uh, you've said many times that one of the things that you disliked about teaching in a university was that students were prone to minimal compliance, and what you wanted out of them was spontaneous elaboration. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was it about universities that you think drilled that spontaneous elaboration out of them? I don't know, but... I would tell students, pretend you're writing a letter to somebody. Imagine your grandma asking you what's going on uh, up there at the college. Well, be ready to tell what's going on. Uh, that shows an engagement, and I also think it has a way of moving it from some kind of formality that... Uh, is you know made for a test uh the spontaneous mm -hmm. elaboration will take a student beyond what has been put on the blackboard yeah well let's talk a bit about that that transition for you from university teaching to the founding of the land institute back in 1976 the first story that is in the book hogs are up uh, year of Decision, 1976, and you subtitled that story, 
the rest of the story. So um, this involves a, a story you had told for many years about when you were on leave from California State University, Sacramento, and you either had to go back to Sacramento, take up your teaching position again, or stay in Kansas and, and roll the dice on founding an alternative school, what became the Land Institute. Uh, that was a pretty heavy decision. Tell that story and then give us the rest of the story. Well, it was a leave um, that I had that was supposed to be for one year. I stretched it into two years. But um, as it came close to the end of the second year, why they let me know in Sacramento that I had, I had to return or resign. It was as simple as that. And uh, from a professional point of view in Sacramento, I had a good job with tenure in the academic world. And so I had plenty of security, a decent salary, health benefits. And a lot of those weren't available in Kansas. Uh, but uh, as parents, we had worried about the future and about how we might prepare ourselves and our children uh, to develop the necessary skills for this uncertain future. So, um, you know, we had the milk cow, we had the butcher hog, chickens for meat and eggs. And my then wife, Dana, was a good gardener, good beekeeper. And um, we kept the kids to work. All three learned skills without knowing it. And so uh, we had begun to uh, get the house put together. We didn't have any money, and so we did things, a lot of it on the cheap. Well, I'd also been thinking about the ideal kind of school, uh, one where there would be that spontaneous elaboration. There was a friend of mine who happened to be the state senator from Salina, John Simpson, and uh, we were at a party at his house one night. I was thinking about going back, and but I'd been thinking about the school. And he said, well, if you want to start a school, I'll help you. Well, now, now we had some options. And so our family came together and uh, we talked about the uncertainties associated with all of this. And I said, well, we better go back. And uh, at that point, my daughter, who was then 15, Laura, burst into tears and said, but I thought you always said we're not called to success, but to obedience to our vision. Uh, well, I resigned. And I've told that story many times uh, around the country. So the wisdom of, of a, a young person forced you to, to take that chance. The, and the moral of the story, I suppose, is that we should listen to the the kids who are not yet, um, not yet scared. Is, is, that, is that how you, you would tell it? Well, yes. There would be such utterances as, my, my, think of that. And out of the mouths of babes, and a child will lead us, and so on. And so for 43 years, I'd told something close to this story. And, uh, well, then I told it one other time in the presence of my daughter at a gathering at her house. And uh, that's where the true story came through. So Laura, hearing you tell the story, said, well, there's a little more to it than that, Dad. There were 25 or 30 of her friends and her 
husband's friends there for a birthday celebration for her husband, Kamyar, and also me. So their friends uh, were wanting to know how we happened to start the Land Institute. And I told the story. I just said, you know, Laura's the one. And I kind of waved my hand toward her. And she said, well, there's more to that story. And, and then she went on to say, we had moved seven times. And I'd gone to seven different schools and I didn't want to move again. And I knew that if I threw one of dad's lines back at him, I wouldn't have to change schools again. Well, I was astounded because I'd lived with a good story. It was an incomplete story. And it's the first time I'd ever told the story with Laura present. So Laura got what she wanted back then. The Land Institute came into existence because a 15-year-old girl didn't want to change schools again. And knew her dad well enough to know how to maneuver the situation. Right. Well, that's the, the first story in Hogs Are Up, stories of the land with digressions. The book moves then through uh, your history growing up in, in Kansas, uh, as well as your professional life, yeah. uh, your education, and then on to your work with the land. Let's start with one of the stories about growing up. Um, it's one of my favorites. The title of that chapter is Over the Fence is Out, mm-hmm. Softball Rules at West Indianola District 93. Yeah. So that's a reference to where you went to school. This was, uh, as I recall, a two-room school house. Right. A two-room country school, eight grades, no kindergarten. There was one through four in the little room and five through eight in the big room and only eight months a year. I guess school kids were expected to be on hand to help with getting the crops planted and harvested or whatever else was needed at that busy time. And that was a time when uh, there was still polio around and we had three what we called Everybody called cripples, you know, two students and a teacher all had polio. We had some pretty sophisticated ways of dealing with uh, seeing to it uh, during workup. Okay. So explain what workup softball is. Yeah. Well, with workup, there are no teams. Out in left field is the last person that is going to be able to come up and bat. And if you're at catcher, you're going to be the first one to come up and bat. But when there was an out, then there was just a shift. The uh, right field person went over to left field. There was a rotation. One of the things I remember is most interesting about it is Jerry Blyer. He was strong and rather large. And, you know, he could hit a home run, hit the ball over the fence. Well, if he hit that ball over the fence, he was out. Uh, And I've thought about that a lot. Over the fence is out was the rule. So Jerry Blyer, let me me get this clear. Jerry Blyer was the strongest of everybody and had uh, the capacity to basically hit a home run every time. Right. So the rules that you all made up, were that hitting a home run meant you were out to kind of even out the, the odds a bit? You know, I have no idea how those rules were drawn up. They were just there like the school itself. Um, 
and we were mostly left alone on the field. Now there, sometimes yeah. a teacher would call the balls and strikes, but not usually. Teachers were usually talking to one another. And we made special provision when the little kids wanted to come in and play ball. Uh, when they pitched, they were allowed to shorten the distance between the pitcher's mound and home plate. And now and then a kid would get mad and here she had insisted, here she had made it to base and was safe. And there'd be a hue and cry that represented a vote. <laughs> and so in a pout, that kid may head to the swing set or the teeter-totters. All right. So you, you had some rules that kept the heavy hitters in line, but you also said there were two students who'd had polio and had constraints on their ability to, to run and, and play. You had special rules for them as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, one of them had braces on both legs and one of them had a shortened leg, so allowed more strikes now, when they hit it, why then somebody else would have to run the bases for them. But they were allowed to bat, and uh, uh, we saw to it that they did bat. What I've thought about many times is that part of over the fences out and what that could mean in a society. I've thought about that in a metaphorical sense. Uh, we didn't come onto this continent to have a bunch of billionaires that leave us out of the... <laughs> out of the participation as citizens. Uh, uh, there was a sense of fairness that was kind of built in. Yeah. Now, y you said this was sort of self-organized, that some of those rules, nobody even knew how they got made. Yeah. Uh, the contrast is pretty obvious with so much of uh, children's athletics today, yeah. which are organized with adult coaches sometimes even uniforms for little kids. This can start as early as, you know, first grade. Yeah. Uh, you had none of that. What do you think is the best system? Kids self-organizing or organized with adult participation? Well, maybe it's a bias I have from uh, what a wonderful time I had during recess on that field. I like the idea of us um, playing workup. We're sitting in class, you know, and we get plenty of teacherhood. Uh, why do we need any more? The thing is, uh, some of those rules would change now and then. And I've wondered how that happened. Sometimes we, we played with the rule that when someone caught a fly ball, they exchanged with the batter. And other times that person was just out. I can't remember how we decided how it was to be. But uh, there's something somewhat democratic about all that that is, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it, it seems to me there is some, there's some richness in, in yeah. all of that. Yeah. So there are other stories in the book based on your own experience growing up, but you also write about rural life and Kansas more generally. Uh, one of my favorites is your story about the Matfield Green Women's Club. You, along with folks at the Land Institute, bought some property in Matfield Green in rural Kansas, a town that at the time you bought only had about 50 residents. Yeah. Uh, what was the Matfield Green Women's Club and how did you come to know about it? Well, property was cheap, or I should say low priced in Matfield Green. You know, you could buy a house for $1,000. 
Now you're going to be involved in some fix-up. Actually, I bought one for 500 And so fixing them up, I had great fun tearing off the porches and cleaning up the yards. And, you know, it was sad as well as going through the abandoned belongings of families who had lived out their lives in this beautiful, well-watered, fertile setting. It's, the, it's in the midst of uh, Tallgrass Prairie, thousands of acres that have never been plowed. But in this very auspicious little place of Matfield Green, uh, I was in an upstairs bedroom, and I was going through stuff, and I came across a dusty but beautiful blue padded box labeled Old Programs, New Century Club. And most of the programs were from 1923 to 1964. And each program listed the officers, the club flower, which is the sweet pea, the club colors, pink and white, and the club motto, just be glad. And the programs for each year were gathered under one cover and nearly always dedicated to some local woman who was special in some way. And uh, looking through those programs, each month the women were to commit on such objects as canning, jokes, memory gems, a magazine article, guest poems, flower culture, and then misused words and birds and more. The May 1936 program uh, was a debate resolved that movies are detrimental to the young children. The August 1936 program was dedicated to coping with the heat. Remember, this is the Dust Bowl era. And the, the roll call was hot weather drinks. People could give their ideas on what would be a good hot weather drink. And then it was followed up by suggestions for hot weather lunches. Mrs. Rogler offered ways of keeping cool. So here's a cultural way when there's no air conditioning of dealing with these problems. Now, going back earlier, the roll call in 1929 and the disease I fear most, and that's 11 years after the great epidemic. Also, children were still dying those days of diphtheria, whooping cough, scarlet fever, pneumonia. On August 20, the roll call question was, what do you consider the most essential to good citizenship? That was really moving to me. And in September of that year, it was Birds of Our Country. And uh, the program was on the morning dove. Well, what became of it all? From 1923 to 1930, the program covers were beautiful, done at a print shop. From 1930, the effects of the Depression are apparent. Programs were either typed or mimeographed and had no cover. The programs for two years were missing, and in 1940, the covers appeared again, this time typed on construction paper. Uh, the print shop printing never came back. And then uh, the last program from the box, dated from 19, 
64. I don't know the last year that Florence Johnson, who's mentioned there, attended the club. I do know that Mrs. Johnson and her husband, Turk, celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary for on that same box were some beautiful white 50th anniversary napkins with golden bells and the names Florence and Turk between the years 1920 and 1970. A neighbor told me that Mrs. Johnson died in 81. The high school closed in 67. The lumberyard and hardware store closed about the same time, but no one knows for sure when. The last gas station went after that. But uh, back to those programs. The motto never changed. The sweet pea kept it standing. So did the pink and white club colors. The club collect was written by a Mary Stewart in 1904. And it was popular in women's groups, not only in the United States, but around the world. And that uh, collect persisted at their meetings month after month, year after year. And uh, I'd like to read that. Here it is. It's called a collect for club women. Keep us, O God, from pettiness. Let us be large in thought, in word, in deed. Let us be done with fault-finding and leave off self-seeking. May we put away all pretense and meet each other face to face without self-pity and without prejudice. May we never be hasty in judgment and always generous. Let us take time for all things. Make us grow calm, serene, gentle. Teach us to put into action our better impulses, straightforward and unafraid. Grant that we may realize it is the little things that create differences that in the big things of life, we are as one. And may we strive to touch and to know the great common woman's heart of us all. And O oh Lord God, let us not forget to be kind. Now by modern standards, these people were poor. There was a kind of naivete among these relatively unschooled women. Uh, some of their poetry was not good. Some of their <laughs> ideas about the way the world's works seem kind of silly. Some of their club programs don't sound very interesting. Some sound tedious, but their monthly agenda was filled with decency and with efforts to learn about a wide variety of items, birds, our government, how to cope with their problems, the weather, diseases, Naive in some ways, perhaps, but they were living up to a far broader spectrum of their potential than most of us do today. So I've thought about that as a standard many times, and I'm not suggesting we go back to 1923 or to 1964. But even yeah. as they were losing ground, they were, they were doing better than we are. Yeah. I remember... 
you read that uh, club collect for women uh, at a prairie festival once and uh, many years ago now. And I remember kind of choking up a bit at that last line and, and oh Lord, we have to remember to be kind. And I just had the same reaction to it again, even though I've you know read it many times since. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would be easy to, as you say, to look at those women and say they're unsophisticated. Um, the words that those of us from rural states are familiar with are, you know, hick or redneck or whatever. How do you feel about how they lived their lives? I would say they were being responsible and they were doing the best they could. We have to remember some of those people, probably most of them, had no indoor plumbing, no indoor toilet. They maybe had running water coming into the house, but they may not have. Uh, they were probably heating with coal or wood or both. They were making it. And uh, at, a, at a somewhat of a marginal level. But the fact that they maintained that high I would say intelligence about what is really important is moving to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They did not fall apart. They simply stayed at work, and that's responsible yeah. life. These are folks that uh, were living with a kind of decency without uh, feeling sorry for themselves. <laughs> They made do with what they had. Uh, these weren't wealthy people, obviously, but they did, they did cultivate the, the kind of art of frugality. There's another story in the book that I think uh, really speaks to that. Another one of my favorites. It's called Brother Harley at the European Union Parliament. <laughs> uh, so why don't you tell us who Harley is and then uh, explain that scene. All right. Well, Harley is... The brother next older than I, he's eight years older than I am. And uh, Harley, in another week, uh, will turn 93 years old. But back in 2000, my wife and I and Harley and his wife, uh, we went to Stockholm. And uh, we were also given a tour of some important places in Europe. So Harley, Harley went along with us on that tour. His wife had a background in Swedish, and she wanted to meet with some of her family members. So the three of us were sent to Brussels to the European Union, and um, I was to meet with the European Greens. And then we were given a tour of the European Parliament. And uh, they had a German guide to see to it that we were well taken care of. So we're here at the European Union, and uh, the German is explaining to us that given the different countries, now the breakup of the Soviet Union has happened, and there's still countries coming into the Union. He says, you know, given the number of new countries coming in, we're going to have to have a different European Union. So my brother Harley, he walks to the back of this big assembly hall and uh the german he kind of looks at him with a glance but he continues his narration to joan that's my wife and me and we listen with more than dutiful interest 
And I'm thinking Harley should be here listening with comparable interest, but he continues to walk to the back, looking left and right and up and down. And during a short pause in the guide's narration, why I get an order from the back with a tone and urgency that I might have heard back in the fields or at the barn on the farm. I see his long arm attached to his six foot three frame. And there's that index finger beckoning me again to come over. And so, but I dutifully make my way to the back of the auditorium. And this time he wants my opinion on what he's pondering. I've pretty much figured out what's on his mind. So I'm not surprised when he asks, he's thumping with the back of his hand against a wall. He says, you think this is a bearing wall? Well, the German guide and Joan, they arrive from the front. And so I'm stuttering whether this, in fact, is a load-bearing wall. Explain what a load-bearing wall is for people who don't know construction. Well, that's a wall that doesn't just divide a room, but all supports the weight of a roof. So uh, if it's a bearing wall, one has to be careful about knocking it out. So Harley asks the German the same question. No matter, he's already determined that it isn't a bearing wall. And even if it were, it could be dealt with using steel beams. Anyway, he consults the German again. He says, this space here at the back, what do they do with it? Well, the German doesn't know. He says something about receptions. Harley says nothing, but I know he must be thinking that Receptions are frivolous, maybe even thinking they could bring their own lunch or eat ahead of time. I don't know. But anyway, his questioning isn't over. It says, how many did you say would be added? The German gives a ballpark approximation. Harley then begins counting seats and rows together. And uh, so he's still sizing up this non-bearing wall looking at the additional space available, if the wall were removed and declares, I don't think you need a new building. Look here, all this room here at the back. Well, now Harley didn't follow up on that. Maybe he thought it was enough for the German to hear and then get back to whoever might have a say on (laughs) such matters. But the thing is, he's solving the problem for all of Europe. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, So what is this? This is somebody born in 1928 uh, when the exercise of thrift and frugality were common. No need to build new if the existing structure will do the trick. I mean, it's as simple as that. And that takes us back, you know, to those uh, women in Matfield Green operating according to what Milton called the holy dictate of spare temperance. My brother's considered naive I consider him engaged. Um, I want to ask you about one more story that gets at that same point. It's uh, another one of my favorites. It involves a story you had told to you about uh, a Mennonite landlord who didn't want to add uh, electricity to a house he owned and was renting to a family. Uh, The title of that one is Satan is on the Other End. And why don't you explain what that, what that meant? Satan's on the other end. Yeah. Well, there is in Kansas, in the town of Hillsboro, which is a Mennonite community, 
the Mennonites are the ones that are given the credit for bringing the wheat, uh, the uh, turkey red wheat. And I think 1870s, late 70s, early 80s, and they mm -hmm. built their lodging out of uh, local materials. They also tended to have structures that were similar to what they had back in Europe that uh, were very efficient, a way of heating the whole house and at the same time being able to cook. It's an elegant thing. And so my wife, Joan, and I stopped there to uh, look it over. And the guy that was the guide as a young man, recently married, he and his wife used to live in that place. And he told the story about right after they were married, I think he said they moved in and it wasn't long until they had a child and uh, the load begins to increase for both of them, probably most especially the wife and the mother. So he says to the Mennonite that he was renting this from, and he was a Mennonite himself, it'd be nice to have electricity. And uh, the owner said, well, no, no, no electricity. Uh, another child comes, more washing, more this, that, and the other. And I don't know how many years this goes by, two, three, four, I have no idea. And there's kind of a plea and he says to the Mennonite owner, says, it'd really be nice if we had electricity. He says, yeah, I know, but Satan's on the other end. What do you think he meant by that? Remember, these people were run out of Europe. These Anabaptists were despised by the military and they were despised well they were despised by both catholics and protestants because they didn't believe in infant baptism and so they had seen uh, what power did to run them off and so the thing you try to do is minimize so that you're not vulnerable so when they say satan's on the other end uh, you may have it good for now but you're going to pay for it. There's a fair number of people that still carry the idea. I'm one of them. You know, what goes up must come down. Yeah. And uh, don't think that if you get something that's pretty nice, you better realize that sometime yeah. or another you'll pay. It deserves uh, serious contemplation, I think. Yeah. And of course, as you point out in the story, let's assume that electricity uh, was generated by a coal-fired power plant. Well, it turns out that, you know, burning fossil fuels may end up destroying the world. So in a very direct sense, maybe it was Satan there on the other end of that electric yeah. power line. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the theme we've been talking about is uh, rural life, low energy life, frugality. Uh, and that, that leads me to the final chapter in the book. Uh, which is called Hardening Off. And this isn't a story. It's a, an article you wrote in the first issue of The Land Report, which is the quarterly magazine that the Land Institute publishes. And uh, it provides, I think, an, an important uh, metaphor, perhaps, 
for modern society. Uh, of course, we've lived with high energy and high technology for a long time, and more and more people are starting to, to realize that's not a permanent condition. So tell us about that hardening off essay. What did hardening off mean, and, and why was that on your mind back in the mid-70s? Yeah, well, it had a lot to do, I think, with uh, the motivation behind the school. Uh, this was the first publication of the Land Report, and that was December of 76. I had planted some seeds of a winter annual in small pots in a greenhouse. Uh, they were painstakingly watered and fertilized, and they produced a green, luxurious growth, surpassing in overall vegetative vigor their relatives in the field. And from experience, um, People that do this kind of research know that if we move those plants from the cozy greenhouse environment and left them outside, they'd be vulnerable to the very environment that had shaped their ancestors. And so a high percentage would be unable to withstand the shock, might die, not because they lack the genetic potential to resist the environmental extremes, but because the narrow greenhouse environment had not called forth the broad spectrum of the genetic potential that's necessary to endure, you know, the adversity that's presented to the populations in the wild. And uh, I was trying to make the point in this article that the United States as a developed country might be regarded as a greenhouse culture. You know, we, we're watching a gathering storm right now outside our comfortable environment. It's called climate change. And uh, we're seeing that uh, we're vulnerable. Our culture is vulnerable. And we have reason to believe that our nice, cozy environment may fast disappear. So, you know, there's a way to gradually prepare greenhouse plants for a full life outside. It's called hardening off. You take the plants outside for a few hours each day at the beginning, and the amount of time they're left outside is gradually increased. You take them out in the morning, you bring them back in the afternoon, but you increase the length of time every day or two, and eventually they can be safely left outside permanently. Now, the first time they're placed outside on a quiet, warm afternoon. The outside environment may appear to differ very little from the greenhouse environment, but it's an important first step. Somehow it seems different. So what we're doing during this hardening off period is giving the plant the outside conditions and the time for its genetic machinery to kick in, so to speak and enable it to cope with the outside environment. One of our main purposes at the Land Institute back then was to provide alternatives to the present for a cultural hardening off process. And so our students were on projects designed for that purpose. I wanted to get them using their hands and their minds and uh, have them begin to essentially harden off and be prepared for whatever adversity comes their way. Yeah. So 
If you look at a lot of the stories in this book, they are stories from your past, uh, from rural Kansas. And it would be easy for, I think, a reader to say, well, he's just being nostalgic. Is the goal of, of these stories to help people see uh, what that hardening off process might look like and, and why it's something not necessarily to be feared, but yeah. to be embraced? I'm thinking about uh, the practical necessity of uh, hardening off. And it can be satisfying, is what I'm betting. But if you haven't had the experience of it, you know, if you haven't been toned up for it, uh, then it's mm -hmm. not going to be satisfying. So, yeah, that's, uh, I think this is, quite frankly, uh, this is something of the future that uh, both of us have been talking about. The, the getting folk toned up and not go back to where we were. I mean, where we were, you know, at the peak of the fossil fuel epoch, but to begin to downpower with a kind of uh, dignity, an elegant frugality. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the stories in this book don't lecture at people about why that's important. They show how it can be done. Is that a, a, your preferred teaching method to, to tell stories rather than lecture to people? Well, don't we all kind of shiver a bit when there's somebody comes by that's sort of didactic? It doesn't feel very conversational. Now, I've had my days of being didactic, too. Uh, but look, we're, we're all in this together. And what we want is a uh, whatever is the, whatever the best ways uh, to catch on to what's going on and being able to respond. The world is unfolding in a way now that uh, humanity has, I think, never seen. And so just pay attention to what's going on and uh, find a way to connect and be a part of the downpowering in, a, in something of a, a positive, more meaningful way. This, hmm. this uh, going up uh, has led to an awful lot of problems. Awful lot of problems. And I'm hoping in the downpowering, we can get more of our humanity back. Yeah. So that line from Mary Stewart's Collect for Club Women is an appropriate way to end. On the way down, Lord God, let us not forget to be kind. Right. Exactly. The perfect right. ending. Right. Wes Jackson's book, Hogs Are Up, Stories of the Land, with digressions, will be available in March from the University Press of Kansas. And Robert Jensen's book, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson, Searching for Sustainability, which summarizes Wes's key ideas over the past half century, is available now, also from UPK. Thank you for listening to Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. For more information on their work, just search for each of their names online. If you enjoyed this conversation, remember to tell your friends to look for it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks also to our partners, the New Perennials Project and the Land Institute. For more information or to make a donation, go to landinstitute.org. This podcast is produced by Bill Vitek, 
Bob Sly, Robert Jensen, and me, Michael Johnson. Music and audio production services are provided by Marcelo Radulovich at Tiddy Cockaman Studios. This has been a production of Perennial Films. <laughs>